0: Good. Good, all right, well, it's, uh, it was funny, when uh, Susanna started talking, I had to start doing math, <laughs> and I really suck at math, but, but Jonathan and I figured out it's been 23 years now in ministry or something like that, so, yeah, it just means I'm getting old, um, so 50-plus, it was also funny. We were sitting there. As we were sitting there, I started getting texts from my from my wife, and uh, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, you're supposed to be in church. Why why are you bothering me? And uh, <clears throat> and and it, it reminded me of the the blessing we have bestowed upon you with Jared and Morgan because she was like, we need Jordan or we need uh, we need Jared back singing. It's a little rough this morning. And uh, so uh, anyway, Jared, you're being requested. Um, Yeah, you're keeping him. I get it. So, but anyway, it's great to be here with you. Uh, Jonathan and I, we've known each other probably 25 years now or something like that. Uh, Just growing, well, growing up. I was in law school at KU when Jonathan was uh, finishing up his time There and then kind of went into ministry at the same time. I think he beat me by a couple of years. So he's probably celebrating a quarter century of ministry now. Yeah. So every Sunday should be a celebration uh, for Jonathan's ministry this year. Um, But uh, yeah, it's so exciting to be here. I get I have the privilege of serving as an elder for this church as well. Um, So whether you know me or not, uh, there are times where I hear about you. Uh, and get to pray for you guys, and uh, and just believe for what God is wanting to do on this campus and in this community, and and see what God wants to do. It's uh, as I was praying this week, one of the one of the words um, that kept coming up, and and I still haven't figured it out even all the way over here this morning. I was like, okay, God, what exactly does that mean? Um, but the the word that kept coming. Uh, back to me over and over again was refreshing, um, that God wants to refresh you. And so I think it's, I think it's for, for somebody here specifically, as, uh, just as an individual. I know, it, I know it's corporate as well, but I really believe that there's somebody here who has, has just been kind of crying out to God and saying, God, I just, like, it all feels so dry. It all feels like I'm just going through the motions, and, and God wants to refresh you. God wants to put you in a place where, where you are actively hearing from him, where you are communing with him, where you are talking with him, and his, his spirit is here and available, and he wants to do that. So I just want to encourage, encourage you with that to begin. Uh, if there's nothing else you hear today that you're like, that's helpful, then just remember um, that God wants to refresh you, that, that God and his spirit are there for you and he wants to talk with you, okay? Um, so this morning, what, what, uh, what we're going to talk about is being changed by God, uh, being changed by God. And how many of you have ever had an experience in life um, or seen something that has changed you? Uh, I know it's a relatively... You know, young group here, but when I think about that, uh, many times I think about it could be the birth of a child, that there is something that just happens in that moment where. You know, especially if, if uh, well, I think it, it's probably more true with a mom, but I only have the experience of being a man. Um, and so in that moment, though, it's kind of funny. Like the dude, you go through your first, you know, eight, nine months, and you're like, good job, honey, good job. You're growing a baby, right? But it doesn't hit you until the moment where that child is there. And, the the you know, like my wife never... Understood this? She's like, the baby's with me. It's moving. It's all. And I'm like, I believe you. But man, at that moment, there is something that happens when that baby is born, and you're just like, whoo! Like it hits different. You're like, man, there's there's this love there. There's this this growing sense of responsibility that drops like a ton of bricks. Like, oh, okay, there, not. Like game on, let's go, right? And so there are these moments in life. It could be, you know, an accident or it could be something, you know, scary or traumatizing that happened in life. It could be something that you saw on a trip. Maybe you had the experience of swimming with dolphins and you're like, I'll never be the same. (laughs) I heard the dolphins. You know, it could be when you met a coach or a mentor in your life for the very first time. And they said something to you that, that spoke to you and just kind of brought something out of you that you didn't know that you had before. For many people, it's reading a book. They read something in a book and they're like, man, that, that was what I needed in order to accomplish this in my life. Um, you know, for some, it happens when we lose a loved one, that there is a moment that that happens and it changes us. It changes our perspective on life and who we are. Um, And then for some people, I know there are some who, you know, they love the whole, you know, climbing and hiking and all of that. But how many of you have ever summited a mountain and then you just stood there and, and you looked at the grandeur of what God created and there's something in you that's like, man, this is amazing. I think we've all had some sort of experience in our life that changes us that is like that. As I was preparing for this, I was, I was going through and I was just kind of looking online and I was reading about different people's experiences that changed them. And one of them that I found somewhat interesting was there was this young lady who's uh, in business now, highly successful in business, and she was talking about and reflecting back on her time in college and an experience that changed her. And that experience that changed her life was the first time that she got a C in college, okay? First time she had ever gotten a C. And she remembered back and she was looking at that and she noted how initially she was absolutely shocked because she had never seen that that little, you know, thing on one of her grades. And she's like, what is that? I can't believe that I got a C on something. And so it was a huge knock to her pride but she followed up in the article by saying that there were three things that she learned from that. And the first was that she was not defined by her grades. Pretty good thing to learn, right? But instead, she was defined by her character, that what she learned was that she have she has what it takes to keep doing the work that is required of her. And it was far more important to work hard than what grade she achieved. It's not bad, right, college students? Okay, none of you have gotten a C yet, okay. (laughs) The second thing was that her environment shapes her circumstances, okay? So what that means is when she was in high school, she was around people that were really good at doing mediocre work and she could excel above them. But when her environment changed, and she was around a whole lot more smarter people, well, it didn't come off as well for her, right? And so this was the first time in her life where she had this experience of being around others that could perform better than her. Now, I remember when this happened to me for the first time, and, uh, and my wife was kind enough to remind me of it a few weeks ago. We were getting ready to send our youngest daughter off to college, and so we were looking through all of these, you know, we keep all of our records for the kids and everything in the same place, and unfortunately, we decided to keep some of my records, um, which I did not know about, and so Miriam was like rustling through all this stuff, and then from the other room, (laughs) I hear Miriam, and she's like, she goes, Ryan, did did you remember law school being hard? I was like what she's like do you remember being at hard and I was like well yes honey yes I do I do remember that and she's like well that's funny I was just looking at your uh, at your report card like at your transcript and I didn't realize it was that hard I was like wow I was like that's impressive and I had pretty much uh, forgotten all about that but yeah my first semester in law school it was like I, w- I was shooting for, like, a solid, I think, 2.7 or something like that. Um, it got better after that. Don't worry. But for me, it was, that was the, the one moment in my life where I, like, had this realization, like, hey, bro, you're not the smartest guy in the room. And in fact, you're probably in the bottom 30%, <laughs> you know? And so that was a moment for me that... that uh, that I had to learn the hard way. And then the third thing that she talked about that she learned there is that 70s are okay. I like to say it this way, C's get degrees. All of my kids memorize that one because they're like, Dad, what? I'm like, hey, listen, C's get degrees. I don't care, right? And so it's not the grade that matters as much as it is learning to apply what you're being taught, okay? If you can learn to apply the things that you're learning in class, you're going to go a lot further than people that can simply regurgitate the right things in order to get the grade, 100%, okay? Now, if you can get the grade, get the grade. God bless you, okay? I just, I couldn't. <laughs> All right, so, <clears throat> but the thing that, that I love most about this, article, this woman's understanding in this article, was her understanding that every experience can teach us something. Every experience that we have can teach us something. And throughout Scripture, we see experiences teaching people things all of the time. But some people have experiences. Other people have encounters. And within the scriptures, we see these encounters with people like Moses and the burning bush. That was an experience, yes, but it was also an encounter. We see Mary and the angel. We see the disciples at the transfiguration of Jesus, right? There's all kinds of examples of encounters with God. And this morning, I want us to dig a little bit deeper into one uh, particular encounter with a man named Isaiah. Isaiah. And an encounter that he had with God. So let's begin this morning by reading Isaiah uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. It says In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, "'Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory.' And at the sound of their voices, the doorpost and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. "'Woe to me,' I cried, "'I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty.' And then one of the seraphim flew to me with the live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Our main point this morning is this. It is one thing to be changed by life, but it is quite another to be changed by God. It's one thing to be changed by the experiences that we have in life. It is quite another thing to be changed by an encounter with God. See, in this passage, Isaiah has an encounter with God that changes him. According to most scholars, Isaiah had already been called uh, as a prophet for many years before this encounter with God. He had been a teacher in King Uzziah's kingdom for many years. In fact, he was likely... A first cousin to King Uzziah. And Uzziah reigned for 52 years. 52 years. And was considered a very good king that was loved by his people. Now, most of us get sick and tired of our politicians after about two and a half years, right? Like they can't even make it through a full four-year term, and we're like, next, like let's let's get rid of this person. Right? So imagine 52 years of serving. And so Isaiah is working with King Uzziah during this time. He is a teacher in his kingdom. And Uzziah, like I said, he he had a a pretty good reign. He had a pretty good run. But towards the end of his reign, he began to get prideful, began to get prideful and began to turn his back on God. And we see that ultimately that during that time, he was struck by leprosy toward the end of his life. So we see this encounter that Isaiah has in a recalling from God shortly after King Uzziah dies. So in this vision, Isaiah sees the Lord high and exalted, seated seated on his throne, and there's really a great deal of significance to what he sees in terms of God seated on the throne. Isaiah and his nation had been thrown into tumultuous times, so... Every four years, like we know, we, we get to have this election year, right? And that's what we have this year. And sometimes it can feel like our nation gets tumultuous, right? Like things get thrown up in the air. I don't know how many of you have a long enough memory to remember last time before we had an election, right? We had a summer where like cities were being burned, and then we had this little thing called COVID come in, and we had, you know, everybody had to stay home. So we had mail-in ballots. So, we, so you, you had all this junk, right? And it felt tumultuous. Now imagine, and this is just every four years, like in America, we're like, this is great. This is what we do. It gives us ratings and all this stuff in the news channel. Imagine if you only had turnover after 52 years. It would feel... A little challenging, right? Going from what you know, what is comfortable, the way things run and operate, to going to having a new leader who isn't necessarily following God and the challenge that that presents. Now imagine yourself being Isaiah and being in that position. Isaiah is the one who is teaching his community who's teaching people how to follow the law, how to follow God, how to, you know, how to do life well. And he's a prophet, so he's speaking to the nation about God asking us to do things in a certain way. And you're in the middle of this change of, regi- change of regime. And in the midst of this, Isaiah is still being asked by God to tell the truth. And to tell people what's really going on. Be an incredible challenge, right? I mean, we have situations in, in our country and in our communities where we find it difficult to tell the HR person that we only think there are two genders for fear of losing out on a promotion. Imagine Isaiah having to speak something difficult to the king because the king is going out and trying to build and forge relationships with these other kings when God is not asking him to do that. And Isaiah has to speak to that. So Isaiah's life is in danger. This is what Isaiah is facing when he sees this encounter, this vision that he has with God, and this encounter that he has with God. So Isaiah's vision begins with this picture of the throne room of God. And I believe that that picture of the throne room of God was highly significant. It showed him that there is one who was sitting on the throne that was far more powerful than any of the thrones of the world. That God allowed him to see that picture of Jesus sitting on the throne because he wanted him to know that everything was in control that everything was set, that everything was certain. You know, we learn later in the New Testament in the book of John that this vision that Isaiah has was of Jesus seated seated on the throne and that his robe represented his glory filling the earth. An amazing picture that the throne wasn't empty at all. So even though there was regime change, He could look and see, hey, the throne that matters, the one that is set for all of time, there is no worry. I want you to do me a favor real quick. I want you all just to close your eyes. And I want you to imagine for just a moment, God seated on his heavenly throne. You can go ahead and open your eyes. Now I imagine that in the time that you just had, although it was very brief, I doubt that there was anyone here that had this picture of a frantic God, anxious and worried and wondering what was going to happen. But instead it was a picture. Of supreme confidence. A picture of authority that had no end. There seated, ready to just whatever comes, I'm in control. And that's what Isaiah saw. You know, I think so many times we, we run around and, and life gets so busy that we're that that we live in this place of being frantic or being anxious. And so somehow we assume that God is the same way. Well, if I'm anxious, he must be like, the whole world runs on anxiety. And the beauty is, I think, sometimes of stepping back and just reflecting and closing our eyes and saying, God, God, where are you at in this? Is that, that we can see a picture of God seated on his throne saying, no matter what's going on in the world, no matter, you know, what particular regime or entity or government looks like they're having a pretty good run, it's ultimately God that's in control. God seated on his throne, who's the one in control. And so Isaiah sees this, and if that's not enough to see just a picture of God seated on his throne, there's these amazing seraphim, these six-winged creatures flying and calling back and forth to one another, about the holiness of God and how the whole earth reveals His glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds begin to shake. Man, when you read the Bible, when you read the Bible, don't gloss over this stuff. Allow yourself to sit in and allow yourself to be able to think, that when God himself was showing Isaiah this picture of what was going on, these seraphim began to shout. They began to speak, and as they did, the doorpost shook. This encounter that Isaiah had with God was awe-inspiring. It was life-changing. Isaiah was changed by God... First, because he encountered God. Sometimes we need to step back and get our eyes off of our own life and our own problems long enough to acknowledge who God really is. That God is the creator, that God is the one in charge of the universe, that he is in control, and he is far superior to anything that we know. Now, Isaiah, when he saw this and he began to have this understanding of who God really is, what happened? Something inside of him changed, and his first response, his very first response, was Woe to me! Woe to me! I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. See, when Isaiah had this encounter with God, he immediately recognized his own brokenness and his own sin. The description of his unclean lips was far more than that. The description of his lips We know from scripture that that it's out out of our heart that our mouth speaks, right? And so this description of the unclean lips is not just about things that he said or things that he's done. It's about the condition of his heart. Woe to me for I am an unclean man. And he considered that he might die because he understood that if an unclean man were to see God, that that could happen. And so it led Isaiah to this second point, is that an encounter with God caused him to repent of his sin. It caused a repentance in him. The proper response to the sovereignty and the holiness of our God is repentance. That we see ourselves for who we are, we see him for who he is, and it draws us to a place of repentance. You know, it's interesting. I was there's a recent study that came out, and it says 95%, 95% of people believe that they are self-aware. Okay? And when they did the study, guess what percent? actually had a pretty decent level of self-awareness. 10 to 15%. Okay, 95% believed that they were self-aware, 10 to 15% actually practice self-awareness in their daily dealings with other people. And this was a survey of business leaders. You see, one of the, one of the things that we have so much trouble doing it's seeing ourselves accurately. Seeing ourselves accurately. I think sometimes there are people that see themselves so poorly that they can't see who God made them to be. There are other people who are like, they think they're the greatest thing and, and they can't see what everybody else sees. Like, dude, you're messed up. Like, you have problems. You always have to be the smartest guy in the room and nobody wants to listen to you, right? So we've made it, somehow we have made it a full-time job to deflect or defend or destroy anything that might cause us to have to look at our own lives and admit that we need to change. But you can't do that in the presence of a holy God. When you have an encounter with a holy God, I was having a conversation with a guy a couple of weeks ago, um, a married couple that were trying to help through some challenges, and and it was interesting because he the the man was was trying to share with his wife some of the difficulties he was having connecting with her in their relationship, and how there were certain things that that were happening in their relationship that made it very, very challenging for him to feel connected with her. And, uh, and so as we're listening and, and, and talking, the, the, the woman, in this case, happened to, um, her response to him was, well, I would connect if you hadn't done this, you hadn't done this, You weren't this way, you weren't that way. If this hadn't happened to you when you were five years old, if this hadn't happened to you when you were 13 years old, and just begin to to lay on all the reasons why she shouldn't have to change. And it hit me in that moment, like, how often, how often each of us do that in our own life. That maybe God gives us an opportunity to look at our life and say, hey, this is an area of pride. This is an area of something that we need to deal with. And we'll do anything we can to put it off on some other person, some other situation, some other circumstance. When I think the answer is that if we actually encounter God for who he is, all of that falls away. That when we look at ourselves in light of a holy God, we realize that we must change. So when Isaiah saw God, he was completely undone by this acute awareness of his own sinfulness. I think oftentimes we can say, what we try to do is we try to compare ourselves to to murderers or pedophiles or anybody else that that we stack up pretty good against, and then we're like, no, I'm good. Like, I'm pretty solid compared to those people. But we don't consider ourselves in relation to a holy God. It's only after Isaiah has been totally devastated by the realization of his own sinfulness that he is in the right position to hear the gospel proclaimed to him by the seraphim. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. What incredible words. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The coal from the seraphim was applied to Isaiah's lips, but the words from God were applied to his heart. In that moment, Isaiah became clean. You see, God addressed the true need of Isaiah, not just the outward things that he had said or done to dishonor God, but the condition of his heart being impure before a holy God. And I believe that that's what we need and that's what we desire. To be able to see God for who he is and and have it clearly cut through all of the other junk. Cut through all of our pride and allow us to live in a place of repentance. So immediately after repenting and having God cleanse him, he heard the voice of God talking to his heavenly counsel. All right. Now, once again, we have to pretend like we haven't read this passage a hundred times and gloss over it, right? Imagine being seated in the presence of God, hearing him talk to his heavenly counsel. What is, what is that even like? But Isaiah has this moment of time where he is there and he hears God talking to his counsel and he asks, well, whom shall I send? But there is a message that he has for his people and he's asking, whom shall I send? Who will go for me? And Isaiah having had this encounter with God being wrecked and just being changed hears this, and his response is, here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. The Isaiah was changed by God not only because he repented, but also he was willing to respond to the call that God had on his life. He responded to God's call. And I believe that God has a call for each and every one of us this morning. That as we sit here in 2024, hundreds of years later, that God is still sitting and visiting with His counsel and asking, hey, there's this situation. Who is it that's willing to go for me? Who is it that's willing to say the things that needs said? Who is it that's willing to step into that situation? and be a blessing to that person? Who is it that's willing to step into that relationship and speak words of life and words of truth? God has chosen us to do His will. But He's also given us free will and the ability to say, yes, here I am, send me. Or, no, I've got my own plans. You see, our highest worth and value is found when we figure out what God is doing in the world and we throw ourselves into it. And one of the things I've noticed over my years is that those who are humbled by God's amazing grace and see God in his sovereignty have the greatest inward compulsion to serve God. It's those who see him for who he is that are willing to say, God, I'll do anything that serving God is the glory of their life. Their service is measured not so much in what they achieve or what God achieves through them, but it is achieved by the sheer wonder of seeing the sheer wonder of the God that they serve. It's somewhat similar to, imagine with me, if you had a group of little you know, junior high boys who are out playing football in a park in Manhattan. And as they're sitting there and they're playing this little pickup game of football, car happens to pull up and out of the car steps Patrick Mahomes. And he walks out onto the field with this group of like 15 or 20 little dudes. And he was like, all right, I want these eight on my team, those eight are on the other team. Game changed, right? And so... Imagine with me when those little kids, I mean, they have the time of their life. They're like, dude, I am out here playing football with Patrick stinking Mahomes. Now, in five or ten years, when you hear the story of Patrick Mahomes playing football with those little dudes on a field in Manhattan, how many of those little guys were actually on Patrick Mahomes' team? Every single one of them, right? It doesn't matter if they caught a pass from him, if they were on the other team. And there's not even going to be 16 guys who had played that day. There's going to be 60 little guys who were convinced that they played with Patrick Mahomes that day, even though they weren't there, right? I mean, that's how stories go. But what is it that causes those little guys to run home and they're like, I played with Patrick Mahomes today, you know, and, and do all that. It's really out of the sheer joy of saying, man, I got to play with one of the greatest players that's ever lived. And that's just Patrick stinking Mahomes. We have the opportunity every single day to be on a team with the King of Kings, to be on a team with the Lord of Lords, To be on the team of the best play caller that ever lived. Who wants to speak directly to us and say, this is what I have for you today. This is what I want you to accomplish today. And the joy before us of knowing that the one who made us has called us to be on his team. And to live out this incredible life. Everything else should pale in comparison. To being able to serve our God. I'm going to end with this story today. It's a story of, um, of a man named John Patton. And John Patton was a missionary to the New Hebrides. And in 1836 so just a couple of years before I was born um, when he was 12 years old, he heard the gospel and gave his life to the Lord. He' was a 12-year-old little guy, and he felt the call to be a missionary, and he began preparing by learning Latin and Greek. During his teenage years, then, he was given the opportunity to go to university, uh, to make something of himself so that he could have an incredible career and, uh, and pursue other more prosperous options. But he had an overwhelming impulse. Of this commitment that he had given to God at, at 12 years of age. And there was something inside of him that when he had heard the call of God, he responded, Here I am, send me. And he knew from that time that he was called to be a missionary overseas. So in 1839, three years later, when he was 15, the first missionary group went and, and landed on those islands. The missionaries were murdered and cannibalized the very next day. Very next day. And then in 1848, so that would be nine years after that, another missionary group went to those islands. And Patton would finally get the opportunity to go over and join them 11 years later in 1859. And as Patton got there, Within the first year of being on missions to that island, he lost his wife and lost his firstborn child. And he was able to minister there for three years. And after three years, there was a group of about 40 indigenous people that came to know Jesus. But after three years, they were again driven from the island. Almost killed. And then in 1866, so another four years after they had been driven off of the island, he spent four years recruiting more missionaries, getting more resources to return to the island. And then upon sighting the returning ship, it was reported that the natives of the island said this. It said, we slew or drove them all away. We plundered their houses and robbed them. Had we been so treated, nothing would have made us return. But they come back with a beautiful new ship and with more and more missionaries. And is it to trade and to get money like the other white men? No, but to tell us of their Jehovah God and of his son Jesus. If their God makes them do all that, we may well worship him too. It took four more generations of Patton's own family and other missionaries, but most of the islands came to know and to serve Jesus. They raised up their own leaders to lead the church, and they built the church with natives leading the the way. And much of this, because one little 12-year-old boy caught a vision of the greatness of God. And it stirred something in his heart to say, here I am, no matter what the cost, send me. Send me. And I believe that for each of us, just like for John Patton, that God has a mission, that God has a plan for our life. And that God has put us in community in order to, when we find our people, we find our purpose. And God has put us in community with people to help us find and to live out that purpose that he has for us. My prayer for us is that we would not simply be changed by life or whatever it is that life throws at us on a daily basis but that each of us would encounter Jesus and that God would capture our heart in such a way that we're willing to say, here am I, send me. Send me into that relationship. Send me into that classroom. Send me into that job opportunity. Send me wherever it is that you're wanting me to go to be an influence for you, Jesus. And I believe that each of us will answer that call that God has on our life. Let me pray for us and then Pastor Jonathan is going to come up and lead us in communion. So Father, as, as we enter into this time of communion, God, I pray that you will meet each and every one of us. Father, I pray that that we would consider during this time our own lives, our own hearts. And Father, that we would come with a posture saying, God, I want to be changed by you. Father, I thank you for meeting us no matter where we're at, no matter what we've done, no matter how far we think we are from you. God, that you're reaching out and you you want to have relationship with us. So, Father, we thank you for your forgiveness. I thank you for your presence. And, Father, I thank you for the hope and the future that you have for all of us. Amen.